Well, it's a little hard to um, preach, a, preach a sermon on joy or to sing Christmas songs without just a little smile on your face. So here's what you need to do this morning. Look at who's sitting next to you. If you haven't introduced yourself, you need to do it. And see if they're smiling. If they're not, pinch them. Hey, there's too much pinching going on. Stop that. <clears throat> now, I hope, I, ho- I hope, <clears throat> it is a, uh, just being honest, it is a wonderful privilege to get paid to do something that I love to do. To, to do something that I feel like God has called me to do. Um, I don't tell the finance committee this, but I would preach for free. I would. <laughs> Keep turn the speakers off. David Breakfield's out in the lobby. He's shutting the door. <laughs> uh, listen, the Bible says that for some of the prophets in the Old Testament, it was like a fire in the bones. It just comes out. You got to do it. And I hope, I hope that it's obvious to people that I, I love it. Uh, I, I pray that to the degree that I enjoy it, I continue to get better at it and make it easier on those who listen to me. Because just because I enjoy it doesn't mean that I am easy listening. Um, <clears throat> and I hope that my affect when I preach, I don't look like one of those angry guys that swings Bibles and tells everybody that they're going to hell. That's not really the most helpful evangelistic approach. But today, I want to preach with a smile on my face for the entire sermon. And I would encourage you to listen with a smile on your face. When we stop to this day, consider the birth of Christ. Now I know um, Christmas is uh, still a couple days away. Why don't we push off the birth of Jesus till next week? Well, here we hear the event. And next week, as we listen to the last song sung around the birth of Christ, we hear something next week fascinating. Because while we get all perhaps the pomp and circumstance of the angel choir singing this week, we hear something that we don't often hear at Christmas time, and that is the purpose for the Christ child next week. And so as we look at our scripture passage this morning, Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20, this, this song, uh, we, we, the song is actually really short. It's uh, chapter 2 verse 14. One sentence. But to get it within its context, we're looking at verses 1 through 20. And this this song, in its context, falls into three parts. It begins with kind of the historical setting in the actual birth. The birth of Christ is kind of reported with not a lot of fanfare. And He was born. End of sentence, period. But then we see that it moves into its second scene, which is this angelic visitation. Now, I had people come visit me every time. I was in the hospital for every one of my four kids. Don't know that I had any angels visit me. Had some really sweet people. Got some really good food. I didn't have an angelic visitation. And then we see in conclusion where I think the rubber really hits the road, and that is the shepherd's reaction. Now this is the third song that we are looking at in this series on songs of salvation. In each of these songs that we have looked at previously, at Mary's song, at Zacharias' song, rose from human experience. They were songs that human beings sang to heaven declaring God's praise. And we come to something that is completely qualitatively different 
Because now it's not humans singing up to God for the great things that he has done. These are angels now who are singing down to man in proclamation of the good things that God has done. It's a different choir. It's not a solo. I mean, this one is a choir. That's what freaks the uh, shepherds out, we'll see here in just a few minutes. So a song that comes down from heaven. And while John the Baptist certainly plays an important role in Luke's gospel, in preparing, <clears throat> preparing the way for the Christ child, as important as John is, he's said to be the most important, uh, among the most important born of women. His birth is told in basically two verses. Jesus being that much greater has his birth narrative told in these 20 verses that we look at this morning. And it's the occasion for our joy. So would you pray with me, please, as we look at God's Word and examine our own hearts for why we don't have more joy. God, I pray this morning that you will take whatever feeble attempts uh, at words that I have put together and that you will allow your holy, perfect, clean and enduring word to speak to our hearts. Thank you for all of the things that you have done for us in Christ. Help us to live with that kind of gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at the very first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, we come to the historical setting. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now that wasn't literally all of the inhabited earth. I don't think they made it to Indonesia. It was the entire inhabited inhabited earth of the Roman Empire. And Caesar was, for the purpose of taxation, wanted to know how many people were in his kingdom and how much revenue he he thinks he might be able to get from that. And so uh, Caesar in Rome makes this declaration, and everyone within the Roman Empire has to go and be counted at their place of birth. And so we know Mary is pregnant. Joseph had planned to uh, secretly divorce her, uh, but an angel appeared to him and said, "Um, don't do it, this is a God thing that is happening. And so because of their engagement, their pre-marriage relationship, Joseph has to travel to his hometown of Bethlehem. And Mary, uncustomarily, travels with him. They're not married yet. And so there's no custom that requires an engaged woman to travel with her betrothed for this census. And I think sometimes we don't really catch the um, <clears throat> significance of this journey. It is about a 90-mile journey, depending on what part of Bethlehem and what part of Nazareth, if they left from the north going to the south, the kind of the sprawl around these towns and villages... It could be as far as 90 miles with no light rail, no um, energy-efficient Toyota Priuses. This was foot traffic, donkey traffic. And they travel, Mary going with them. And what I think is so significant when we talk about the historical setting is this. Here's, the I think, the take-home value for us. Is that when we talk about joy at the Christmas season, we can take joy in God's initiative to save. We can take joy in God's initiative to save. We see that Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor, and that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. But who's in charge? 
Why did Mary go to Bethlehem with a man she's not even married to yet? Because God is moving the puzzle pieces around to fulfill his long ago promise. You see, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and even in Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come seeking the star, they say, we've come to see the one who's been born, the king of the Jews. Herod goes, what are you talking about? And they, he consults his wise men, and his wise men quote Micah 5, that say, in Bethlehem of Judea, the king will be born. This was no um, unknown mystery. This was a well-known prophecy. And Luke, for his part, does a good job rooting this whole episode kind of in the history books. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, you you turn over a page to Luke chapter 3. And Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says this, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. There's a whole bunch of names dropped right there. And it's to show that this story about who Jesus is is not another one of Aesop's fables. This is indeed true history. This is not some pious religious story. It is rooted and grounded in any fair-minded observation of historical record. The story of Jesus is not a make-believe fairy tale. It is historical. And God is here taking the initiative to cause Caesar to have the census when the time is fulfilled. And God is the one behind the scenes who encourages Mary with her Marianne Kennedy-like swollen belly to travel 90 miles with her not-yet-husband to be counted for taxation purposes. God is in charge while there might be various humans on the human throne. And you know the story. This is a major empire-wide census that is happening. And so one of the things that happens is there are towns and villages that become swollen with population. And I think sometimes the innkeeper gets a little bit of a hard knock for being perhaps callous and hard-hearted for this pregnant woman who's traveling. And the truth of the matter is this, is that the Roman soldiers were mobilized to make sure that there was peace in the towns as the population increased for census purposes. Where would the soldiers be garrisoned? Public housing. And there was already tension between the Jews and the Romans, so it's not like you were inviting Roman soldiers for a sleepover at your house. They likely commandeered the inn, and when it said that the inn was full, it was because the police were in town to direct traffic and make sure that everything was being taken care of. Kind of like Panther Stadium. When the traffic lets out, there are lights flashing and people with vests and horses and bikes and motorcycles and cars, making sure that everything happens on purpose and with intentionality and with great safety. And so this was not an individual money-grubbing landlord who looked at a woman in hard shape, uh, poor and humble, 
and said, no, you're going to mess up my sheets. I'm not letting you in. It was probably a man who was answering to the government and housing soldiers in his inn. I do think it's interesting. This is an aside. Take it for what it's worth. We like, to, we like to kick the innkeeper and talk about how rude it was for him uh, in his distraction to not minister to this woman in need. And the truth is that overcrowded inn is like many people's hearts today, both inside and outside of the church. Have you this week been so busy with your lights and your ornaments and your lists and your menus and your relatives and whatever else concerns you that you've not allowed the Christ child to sit on the throne of your life this week? Be very careful pointing at the innkeeper because his inn is not the only thing that is perhaps overcrowded. Our hearts are as well. Bethlehem. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? It means Beit Lechem. House of bread. And as God is divinely and sovereignly moving around the puzzle pieces to bring about His fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it indeed most appropriate that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread? We move from the historical setting in rejoicing in God's initiative to bring about the salvation that He has promised to the story of the angelic visitation. We see this in verses uh, 8 through 14. The angels come and they visit the shepherds. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know. The shepherds were considered unclean. They were considered outcasts. They were considered dishonest. It was for that reason. It was a forbidden profession for a pious Jew. They didn't sing, Mama, don't let your children grow up to be cowboys. They're saying, don't let them grow up to be shepherds. They are not good people. Their testimony was so rotten, it was considered inadmissible in a court of law. But the truth is, for a non-pious Jew, a non-God-fearer, you know who the shepherds were? Kind of normal Joes. Sleep, Sleep outside, roll in the dirt work with their hands, normal Joes. Quite a contrast when you see the bright, shining angels appear. No dirt, glorious in their appearance. And it's interesting to me that God condescends to come to the most common of people. You don't have to be anything particularly special besides the specialness that God has already given you being created in His image to be a vessel and a tool for Him to use. And we can rejoice not just in God's initiative to save, but in the angelic visitation. We can rejoice in the angels' message. We can rejoice in their message. The The word angel means messenger, after all. Angels are servants. Sometimes, you know, uh, in popular literature... Uh, The angels look like really fat babies with diapers and harps. Um, Like the theological equivalent of the Smurfs, except they're not blue. 
And um, <laughs> they are warrior messengers because they do God's bidding. They fight spiritually. And it's interesting, when you see the angels appear, look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. It's the word appear. It's translated variously. Mine is suddenly stood before them. It is the angel appeared. Not there. There. And it is the word used for surprise attack or assault. You ever opened up the, you know, the refrigerator door? You know, you're digging around for leftover Thanksgiving stuff and you close the door and there's a kid standing right there. You didn't know they were there. Whoa! They just kind of materialized. They Star Trek beamed right behind out of your field of vision and completely freak you out. That's what the angels did. They appeared. This was a divine, heavenly assault by the angels, except it was an assault of grace, not of aggression. And that's why when we look at the angel's message and we think about the fact that we can rejoice at what they are saying, the very first words out of their mouth is what? Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because they're admitting, I am fear worthy. It's not just, um, uh, I'm a little punk who has scared you. But in my essence as a divine warrior messenger, I'm a fearful being. And when an angel shows up, it is not a, ah, Instagram that. It's not cute and cuddly. It's not break out your cross stitch and, and make a cute picture to put in your bathroom. It is fearful. And that's why he says, on most occasions you should turn and run. But you know what? I got a message for you. Of all people for you. So fear not and listen up. He goes on and says, why should we not fear? He says, because I bring you good news. Now, I think this is interesting. He brings good what? Good news. How many of you this morning read the newspaper? Anybody read the newspaper this morning? Anyone get up and uh, turn on the TV Um, go to your favorite blog to kind of see what's happening in the world. What has happened since my head hit the pillow that I need to know about? It's so important that I do this first thing in the morning. You want the news. Again, this this is a message. This is news. This is historical. And the Greek word used for good news is the word evangelizomai. It is the verb form of the word gospel. Why do I not need to be afraid? And the angel says, Gospel! Good news. And it's not just good news. It's good news of great joy. Not minimum joy. Not lowest common denominator joy. Mega joy. Mega loss. It's at this point that I think we really do confuse happiness and joy. pastor I grew up with, and I love the way he said this. I was talking with a couple men this morning. You're happy when what you want to happen happens. Think about that for a second. But joy, 
is completely irregardless of what happens to you. You've heard the testimony. You've, you've rubbed shoulders. You've shook hands. You've cried with. You've hugged people who have gotten terrible news. It's awkward for us who aren't going through it to know what to say or what to do. And underneath the surface of the news, there is a rock-solid foundation of joy. Because our circumstances don't dictate our destiny. God dictates our destiny. And while we may not like the news, the news is never greater than the God that we serve. How do you measure up with your joy? I love the story. There's a man (coughs) who walked by a table in a hotel and he noticed three men and a dog playing cards. And the problem was the dog appeared to be winning. So the man said, man, I must be a very smart dog. One of the guys he was playing against commented, He ain't so smart. Every time he gets a good hand, he wags his tail. (laughs) When we have joy in our heart, it will be obvious to everyone. When you've got a good hand, you've got to tell. And I just wonder, if we brought 100 people in off the street, and said, all right, we want you up here and we want you looking at everybody. Take a peek. Look in their eyes. You know, check them out. Come up here. Take a little panoramic picture. Joy or no joy? Joy or no joy? Joy or no joy? Joy or no joy? And you think about how with our face and our affect, we testify every moment to how great or how poor our God is. Listen, I I am not above complaining. I hope I don't do it much. I had a hectic morning. It just was. I'm preaching on joy, and I'm running late. Why has that got to happen? It does. But you know what? Complaining is blasphemy against the goodness of God. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. Dudley Hall a sweet layman who has had a powerful ministry to preachers, has said this, Your countenance is a press conference that your face calls to give the state of the union of your soul. Your countenance, your affect, is a press conference that your face calls to give the state of the union of your soul. So friend, what's the state of the union of your soul today? And I don't say this to be calloused. Some of you are dealing with difficult circumstances. I I get that. The holidays are not a particularly fond occasion for you because of friends or loved ones that there is alienation or separation, death and disease. Despite your circumstances, you can have joy because God is good. And it says that He will always be closer than a brother. The angel message says that it is for all the people. Now, I'm not going to say much about this right now, but it doesn't say 
all people. There is expressly in the Greek the definite article there. This joy, this good news, this great joy is for all the people. Who is this group? We'll find out here later. And it's all wrapped up in one person. How does this good news come? What is the source of this joy? For today, in the city of David, is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All three titles used. It's very rare in Scripture for all three titles to be used in one sentence. Savior speaks to His role as our Deliverer. Christ, not His last name. It is a title referring to His office as Messiah. Lord speaks to His divine authority. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you can scratch that verse out of your Bible and still have joy, you don't have the joy that the Bible speaks of. The joy that we get is always mediated through this person who is so wonderful that he deserves three exalted titles. But as exalted as he is, as Savior, as Messiah, as one with divine authority, how are the shepherds to find him? Wrapped in cloths, laying in a manger. It's not just that the angels appearing to the shepherd is incredible for us to conceive. These people who are the riffraff of society. But when we consider how the Christ child is born, we get a snapshot of divine values. This is the most powerful person ever to walk the face of the planet. And instead of being braggadocious, which I don't know how to spell, He comes with humility. No trumpets. No fanfare. No um, Facebook page. No Twitter followers. The one who is the firstborn of all creation. The Alpha and the Omega. The creator of the universe. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The second person of the eternal trinity. The omnipotent Son of God takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. For the fullness of time has now come and God has sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Do you see the complete reversal of divine values compared to the fanfare that man strives for. When we consider the angel's message in, 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 in totality, we see that they stop with the song, but then they conclude. And it says that from this one angel, a bunch of angels show up. Verse 13, And <coughs> suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among the men. With whom he is pleased. What deserves glory to God? This event. He doesn't say, hey, go back to creation. And look at all the stuff that God has made. And glory to God in the highest for creation. He doesn't go, consider God stooping over to form man from the dust of the earth. 
and taking woman from the rib in his side and say, glory to God in the highest for this, the creation of mankind. He doesn't say, go to Nebuchadnezzar and look at this incredible kingdom that he has built. Or go to Samuel who has built this ornate temple for God. Glory to God in the highest for this thing that man has done. It is the incarnation of his son as a servant come to die that deserves the angel's highest praise. And the result is peace. We know that peace does not come to all equally. But in your marriage, a husband and wife can go through the same event and one person be relatively unfazed while the other is freaking out. It's a function of your personality. But when the Bible talks about peace, it is a synonym for salvation. That we indeed have peace with God. And here's the obvious question. Do all men enjoy peace with God? Absolutely not. The Bible's testimony is unequivocal. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there are those whom God has redeemed that have peace with God through His Son. So peace is a synonym for the blessing of forgiveness and salvation. And I think that it's interesting in this passage, peace comes after the angels declare God's glory. Bible commentator Norval Geldenhouse says this, It is the work of Christ to bring peace in all human relations, in man's relation to God, in man's relation to himself, in man's relation to his life's circumstances, and in man's relations to his fellow man. As Christ is honored and given admission to our lives, to that extent, the peace on earth He came to bring becomes a glorious reality. And so far as people live outside of Him, the earth remains in a state of disorder and strife, knowing no real peace. We conclude our look at this uh, birth story with the shepherd's response. And I said earlier, if Bethlehem is the most appropriate place for Christ to be born, then indeed, shepherds are the right people to be witnesses to this birth. Why? Because this child that is born will be known as the good shepherd and the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The shepherd's response in verses 15 through 20 is indeed the very first Christmas rush. It's just not to get into Walmart or Best Buy. It's to get to the manger. How do they respond when the angels have declared this marvelously glorious proclamation of the gospel? How do they respond? They go. They want to be where God is. And like the shepherds, we should respond with a joyous worship, with a joyous work, and with a joyous witness. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. What did they do? They obeyed. Now, what did they obey? 
Did the angel say, drop what you're doing, we'll kind of stay here and watch the sheep, you know, quit your job temporarily, take a break, and go. There's no command given. There's no command given. There's no, therefore now, shepherds, you shall go. But what do they hear? And here's how you will identify the one through whom all this comes. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. What's the implication? Don't just take our word for it. Go see it for yourself. And what do they do? Without being told to obey, the shepherds go to see this thing that God has done. They work. They do something because of the proclamation that has been made. The story continues. They came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. That's got to be longer than a verse. Um, how, how did they know where exactly to go? How long did it take from the point they put their staff down and left the sheep to get there? I don't know. But they came in a hurry and they found him. <clears throat> and when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them by the angels about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. What did they do? They obeyed. They worked. Friends, they witnessed. They could not help but tell the things that God had done. And it says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds worshipped. And C.S. Lewis says this, when we talk about praising God, worshipping God, C.S. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. If you love somebody, can you help telling them that you love them? Do they need to know that you love them? Perhaps. But expressing it in words completes your enjoyment of that relationship. To affirm and proclaim your delight. He goes on. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Joyful worship, joyful witness, a joyful work. <clears throat> I don't want to get anybody off the hook. Because evangelism, witness is the responsibility of every Christian. And there are some here who have, uh, in this crowd, if the statistics hold true, probably the majority, who have never shared the message of the gospel with another individual. Now, for one of the action points of our sermon to be, go tell five people this week when you've not told one in 50 years, is um, that, that's going a little too fast. <clears throat> let me make, let me make this, this kind of practical application. You can witness. It's the low end of the bar, but it's getting you moving in the right direction by having joy. Now, here's a question. You might not know 
you, you might not think that you know enough about the Bible to sit down and have a conversation about metaphysical reality, that God exists, the incarnation, the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to another human being, to us by faith, not by works. You might not feel qualified to do that. But who here is qualified to express joy this week? Anybody? All of us. What would God do if His people simply let the joy that He died to give us be expressed on their face? People might want what you're selling. And you might not be prepared for the conversation. But if joy is obvious and has transformed your character, you might, you might get into a conversation that you're unprepared for because people want to know, how do you have joy in the midst of your circumstances? Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. And he was a man who had a tremendous wit. He was a tireless worker, and he had a very sharp mind. Earned him the title of one of the very best, one of the greatest justices of all time. And at one point later in his life, as people were asking him about his illustrious career, Justice Holmes explained his choice of a career by saying this. As a young man, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. In a culture that is running as fast away from the claims of Christ as possible, why would anyone want your undertaking affect when life is miserable enough for them? How are you testifying to the greatness of God by saying that you have a joy that transcends everything that this world can throw at you? That while you might be crushed, you are not destroyed. That while your circumstances might be dire, it is indeed well with your soul. As we come to our time in our service where there is the opportunity for us to respond. Friends, anytime we hear God's word, there should be some response. You may not walk an aisle, but in your heart, you should do business with God. If there are things you need to repent of, if there are things that you need to get right, if there are relationships that need to be restored, this is your time to ponder what you do with God's message. If you are here this morning and you don't know this joy, guys, it's a package deal. Okay? You get Jesus, guess what comes with him? Joy. So if there's no joy, what question do you have to ask yourself? there no Jesus. If you don't know peace with God, if you don't know the joy that He gives, if you know Christ, but you're just not living the way that you need to, this is the time for you to do your business with God. So pray for yourself and pray for those sitting around you as we enter into our time of response. God, we thank you for this word and we thank you for the tremendous things you have done for us in Christ. With the birth of this baby, you have changed history. 
You have changed our futures. You've given us hope. You've given us promises. You've given us life. Help us to live like these things are indeed true. Help us to desire for others to know this joy and abundance of life that we claim to have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.